0: this evening I'd like to speak um, a bit about motivation and practice. Last week for those of you who came on Monday, talked about this great and ancient Indian story of Nachiketa, of the the descent um, into the underworld, um, that myth, to seek uh, freedom instead of the emptiness of uh, kind of uh, the emptiness of consumer society so to speak that nachiketa saw or the rites and rituals um, and the question that it leaves in one way uh, is about uh, the consolation of spiritual practice that in some way it's easy because in modern times we have so many different spiritual things that are available and we can sort of try when, well, I'll go to Spirit Rock on Monday once in a while and then I go to the Center for Adintutinal Healing on Thursday and my local psychic on Friday, you know, and um, I mean, I don't mean to make fun of it particularly, but you know what I mean, just open the Pacific Sun and or or the Bay Guardian or things like that. Um, and there's the personals pages and there's the Music pages, and then there are the spiritual advertisement pages, and they're equally kind of rich and full um, and overwhelming, you know. Um, and how does one undertake a practice where we don't get somehow lost or repeat that kind of consumer mentality? What Chogyam Trungpa called 25 years ago called spiritual materialism in our spiritual life i had a funny moment last week when i was giving that talk about Nachiketa. actually just as i was about to begin i kind of looked around in the room and it was that moment where you kind of step outside yourself i sort of stepped outside myself and i looked and i said this is really strange all these people are sitting here either with their eyes closed or their eyes open, you know, very quietly, which is already bizarre in our culture. And they're looking at this statue which is basically Greek in origin, although the Buddhists borrowed it from the Greeks, from Apollo, of, um, of this person that never looked like that one can be sure, you know, this kind of image. Um, and here I am sitting in front of that for some God-knows-why reason, right? and all these people are looking at me. Um, and it's bizarre, is what I thought, you know. And then I thought, then for a moment I flipped into that state like being a child and said, you know, how you are in first grade or something, look at me, look at me, mommy, daddy, or something. Well, this is kind of the fulfillment of that <laughs> like, childlike place. Okay, that's, that's all right for a kid. Um, but how easy it is to get entranced. For me, I could get entranced in the role, and I do sometimes you know, or for us to get entranced in spirituality is another kind of trance. Um, and one of the ways I know that I get entranced in the role... Um, <laughs> um, sometimes when I'm, when I'm riding on the airplane, this is just an aside, and I'm traveling to retreats and stuff and people will, you know, sit next to me and they'll say, what do you do? and I'll say, oh, I'm in sales, you know, <laughs> or, or I'm in theater, I say sometimes, something like that. Um, but anyway, um, one of the ways that I know that I get entranced is if I become nervous before a Dharma talk. And I know it's hard to speak publicly and stuff, but I, I'm, I'm sort of used to that, to say the least. Um, but the nervousness comes if I look at it if I start to feel afraid, will, will this be a good talk? Will people like it? Will it help them? The nervousness comes because um, somehow I'm afraid how I'll be viewed or how it will seem to others, be judged in some fashion. Um, and in that moment then I realized that um, what's going on is that I'm not teaching the Dharma, I'm teaching Jack you know, which uh, if you have a choice, my friends, (laughs) it's really clear which road to follow. And the moment that I realize that I'm afraid, I say, wait a second, your job isn't to go up there and kind of present Jack to everybody. Um, uh, That would be um, sickening. Your job is to go and talk about the Dharma, which is the Tao, the law, the way things are. And people might like it or they might not like it, or you might be good at explaining it that night or not. But that's simply your task. Um, And it doesn't have to do with whether they like you or they don't like you. So I begin to reflect about motivation. What is my own motivation for doing this? And I mean, it's a wonderful job. You know, one of the most beautiful kinds of work I could imagine and and there's a great joy in it um, because in it I remind myself of things that I really, in my heart I deeply love and value of nobility, of freedom of the possibilities of living with wakefulness so it's really for me that I do it in that sense It's to remind about this possibility and to to have to search on Monday, what do I want to say today, reflect about it, that today means something. Why be present? This practice that we do of mindfulness of present, because it brings us alive. It's beautiful to see the sorrows and the um, amazing um, mystery and the spring days, and all of that that's here when we're present. It awakens the heart of compassion and it takes me or us out of trance. From Nagarjuna, great Indian Buddhist sage, he writes. The all-familiar pains in this world spring from tormented action. These self-centered actions stem from the mind, which is just a bunch of habits if you haven't noticed. Oh, to be free of habits, what joy! It's possible. To be free in some way in relation to all the stuff that we get caught in. And to speak about the Dharma to you or to myself as I do is simply to be reminded of an inherent freedom or nobility or generosity of spirit that is our birthright, that is our Buddha nature. So what is it? that brings us, or might bring us, to undertake a a sincere or a serious spiritual practice? Meditation, practice of awareness, of compassion, of mindfulness. What spirit do you bring to your practice, your motivation? What is it that you look for? Two jewel merchants arrived in an oasis in the desert about the same time one night. Each was somewhat conscious of the other's presence and while unloading their camels, one of them could not resist the temptation to let a large pearl fall to the ground as if by accident. It rolled in the direction of the other who, with affected graciousness, picked it up and said, ah, oh, this is a fine pearl you have, sir. as large and lustrous as they come. How gracious of you to say this, said uh, the second. As a matter of fact, it's one of the smaller gems in my collection. Now, a Bedouin who was sitting by the fire and observed this drama rose and invited them to come and join him in his meal. There's a nice hospitality in the, those desert cultures. You know, we hear such negative things about Islam, but there's also this extraordinary hospitality if you travel in those countries, many beautiful things. So they came and took his hospitality and began their meal. And then he told a story as they were eating. He said, oh, I too was once upon a time a merchant like you. One day I was overtaken by a great storm in the desert. It buffeted me, my caravan this way and that till I was separated from my entourage. i had completely lost my way. Days passed, I was panic-stricken to realize I was wandering about in all directions, in circles, with no sense of where I was going. Then, almost dead with thirst and hunger, I unloaded every bag on my camel's back, anxiously searching through them for the hundredth time. Imagine my excitement when I came upon a pouch that had escaped my notice before. With trembling fingers, I ripped it open, hoping to find something to eat. Imagine my disillusionment when I found all that it contained was pearls. What do we seek in this life? What do you look for in this short time that we're given? The Buddha's suggestion to us is to look for that which takes us beyond these changing things of the world. A man came to the Buddha and said, how can one look upon the world so that the king of death may not see them? There's a motivation for you. (laughs) And the Buddha said, if you look upon the world as selfless, if you are truly mindful, you will see the world as a star at dawn A bubble in a stream a flash of lightning in a summer cloud an echo a rainbow a phantom a dream to rest in that which is beyond this sense of ourself what is called the selflessness is the jewel of this awakening of awareness and selflessness can be seen in two different ways when we pay attention first that there is no fixed separate solid being that what we are is the same elements as the trees and the earth and the clouds and the oceans and the plants and minerals and the DNA of generations, of millennia, of millions of years of the evolution of life form that moves through us we have this temporary cloak of a body it is not who you are. So that's one selfless truth another way to understand selflessness is to see that what we do in the end is not for ourself that we are in a sense the stewards of the earth the steward of our body of the land like the seventh generation and that selflessness means to live wisely is not to see yourself as somehow apart from the system of life. Now, in some forms of Buddhist practice, establishing a motivation, a beautiful and heartfelt motivation, is the way that one begins spiritual life. The first important task, sometimes it's called bodhijitta, awakening the beauty of heart, the compassion for all beings the love of life. And the Dalai Lama, who speaks a lot about this in his teachings different times, talks about how how helpful it's been to have a pure motivation in his practice. Go through all these things and he said, I have so many difficulties, so many terrible decisions to make, so many conflicts to deal with, and many times I don't know the right thing to do, says the Dalai Lama. But what gets me through this is my sincere motivation. My intention, no matter whether I'm right or wrong, my intention as best as possible is to act for the benefit of all beings, to act out of compassion, to find that kind of motivation. That's his motivation. So in certain forms of Zen, so does Zen, pure intention to simply sit and sit as if you were the Buddha. Not to become something, but to sit, to be the Buddha as you sit. That's all. To pretend you're enlightened and act that way. And after a while, who knows? You know, it might rub off. (laughs) So there was a young man who went to a master at one point, Zen monastery, and he said, I've heard of Satori, I've heard about enlightenment. I want to give my life to this. I'm really sincere. If I practice with this sincerity, how long will it take me to get enlightened? With that sincerity. The master looked back. You know how young men are. He said, ten years. The young man was shocked. Ten years? So long? I'm really sincere. The master said, well, then I've made a mistake. He said, in your case, it will take 20. <laughs> twenty. Twenty! What do you mean? And I really want to do this. Why did you double it? And the master said, Well, come to think of it, in your case, perhaps 30. (laughs) This kind of motivation of pure intention to be the Buddha says that what matters is not something in the future. It's the motivation to be here now. It's either now or never to awaken is now, this moment, always now. And any striving, any wish, any hope to be anywhere else is off the mark, is delusion. So our task as we sit and practice is to meet this moment, to be present with full heart of compassion. For this moment, this mystery, as Suzuki Roshi says, You know, the goal of practice is always to keep our beginner's mind. That is your heart's willingness to be present for life as it is. This is how it is, this moment. Now, another way that this can be expressed, this compassion, this willingness to open one's heart and one's eyes to be present for life as it is, is the bodhisattva vows, motivation, the vows of a great Buddha. And this teaching one might hear or understand, it's taught, that all of us have taken bodies, taken forms again and again and again and again. You may or may not believe this, you don't have to, but it's certainly a wonderful myth, and it might be true, you never know. (laughs) And that every being around you has been your mother and your father and your son and your daughter, you know, over, you've done it so many times that they're all your uncle and your aunt and your nearest relative sitting around you. You're surrounded by family, I'm sorry to say, right? <laughs> and then this motivation says, sentient beings are numberless. My family is boundless. There are so many beings. I vow to liberate them all. I vow in my motivation, my practice, the first vow, is to bring freedom to awakening to all of us. Difficulties are boundless. I vow to overcome them all, however many there are. The dharmas are endless. I vow to master them all. And the Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to attain it. So this is another kind of motivation. One begins with these vows and then sits down to awaken in the whole world. And this kind of reflection, which one might do over and over in the face of difficulties, looking at the sorrows of the world, so many ways people get caught up in the small sense of self, in their isolation, so many lifetimes, say, now it is possible, no matter who you are, it is possible to awaken. But to have that motivation, we have to have it for ourselves. It, is, it asks our own willingness to sit in the face of birth and death with a kind of dignity, to face our own ignorance and fears and grasping and illusion, and discover a great compassion and freedom in the midst of it. That is what we must do if the world is to awaken. It has to start here. So this is a kind of dedication that people make sometimes when they sit. May I practice for the benefit of all beings. And while it's a beautiful dedication, and a beautiful way to begin one's practice, if you look, you'll notice at the beginning of practice, and even as one goes along, that there are many, many other motivations, aren't there? Not just that. So many different ones you know, maybe it's just a hip thing to come to Spirit Rock, I don't know. Or maybe you come and practice because it's a way to relax, to slow down, because the world is so nutty. Our society, the speed, the schedule books, the faxes, call waiting. Oh, God, I mean, think about it. One call isn't enough at a time for you? It's just to say, this is insane, let me stop. Let me remember my breath and walk on the earth. That's a fine motivation. Or maybe your motivation is a curiosity. So many centuries of spiritual practice, enlightenment, awakening, the compassion, all these teachings, mystical things. What is this about? Is it true? Let me find out. Sometimes our motivation is much more earthy than that. It's simply to stop drinking, you know, or stop harming ourself, or stop harming others. Very, very basic. It's like Milarepa who practiced out of fear after causing these hailstorms and the death of many people as a way to get back to those who'd harmed his family. And then all of a sudden having this tremendous fear of the consequences of the way he was living and waking up and saying, boy, the way I've been living has made some real bad karma, some bad consequences, and I better do something different. So sometimes it's just that basic to stop harming ourselves or others. Let me find a way. Sometimes it's healing or survival, how to deal with loss, with our grief, with our sorrows with the pain around us, with the confusion in our life, with depression, with uh, changes that are inevitable in everyone's life and difficult, with betrayal. And we come, I need to find some way to deal with that. Sometimes it's for joy. I practice for the joy of being present in the moment, to be awake more. Maybe the motivation at moments is political because we see how much greed and hatred there is in the world. It's like, you know, from the U.S. Weapons and Human Rights Abuse Peace Action Newsletter, um, 73% of all weapons sold to third world countries came from the United States. Seventy-eight percent of these were sold to human rights-abusing nations. Somebody has to find out about peace in this world. And it's not just a political event in Washington. It has to start by somebody understanding the roots of violence and peace in themselves. All of you outside who've done all that you can for us in prison, say this Tibetan nuns, We are deeply grateful to you and will never forget you. Therefore, we send you these songs. Sometimes we sit for others. We sit for peace in the world. Or maybe out of interest. What is the nature of mind, philosophical? Or maybe we come at moments for community because we're so isolated or lonely or disconnected in our cars on the freeways. Sometimes it's to connect with the sacred, the divine. There's some sense. If we only slow down, we could touch something beautiful. And then there was the man who came to a retreat recently whose wife bet him that he couldn't do it, right? (laughs) And he came to prove her wrong. All kinds of motivations. Haven't you noticed? You know? I remember Ajahn Jamnian, this monk who's coming in a couple of weeks, and you, those of you who sign up for the day long or part of that week, he's really a wonderful being, uh, filled with uh, this kind of sparkle of loving-kindness and, and um, ease and, and so forth. And when I was a monk staying at his monastery, he was, um, at that time, you know, it was 25 years ago, He was a very handsome and charismatic teacher, 35 years old, and um, there were so many people coming to his monastery because he had this huge field of loving-kindness. It was his specialty, Um, and he was beautiful, and he would speak about it, and people would swoon. It was just wonderful, you know, and I was practicing there, and after a while I realized that, you know, a lot of people weren't even there to meditate. They were just there because they were in love with him, you know, a lot of the nuns and a lot of the monks as well were in love with him. So I went to him one day, I was kind of a purist, and I said, do you realize, you know, that these people aren't even meditating? I mean, they're here, they just want to sit and goo-goo-gaga, they just, you know, they're in love with you. You know, don't, do you know that's going on? and he laughed he said of course I know that you know you think I'm dumb it's it's pretty obvious isn't it I said well what are you going to do about it and he said I don't have to do anything he said that's what brings them he said anything that gets them here is okay they get here and then I teach them I teach them how to be still I teach them how to love themselves I teach them how to be aware of their breath and their body and all the stuff in their mind he said whatever brings them it's okay then we practice So motivation, all these different motivations. In a way, maybe it doesn't matter, does it? Huh? Just that you do it. Still, in the long run, if we practice or do anything just for ourselves, it becomes a problem. It would have been easy, for example, for Lama Yeshe, this great Tibetan teacher um, who wrote, and I've used this in other talks, this letter when he was hospitalized for a heart attack, saying after 41 days of unending pain, my body is like that of the lord of the cemetery, my speech like the barking of an old mad dog, and my mind like that of an anti-god. I can't practice, I can't do anything. Here I am this great Tibetan Lama, I can do nothing. It's pretty bad in the intensive care unit after all these days. It would have been easy to say, oh, I failed if he did it just for himself but he didn't fail because he taught hundreds maybe thousands of other people beautiful beautiful things he left awake of compassion and dignity and respect wherever he went there's a story of a burmese woman an old widow no children very poor and pious and for years each night she'd light a candle in the window of her little house and sort of recite the Buddhist sutras and end by saying by this spirit and chanting may all beings be well and happy and liberated You know, and it seemed like it was for everyone and one night the candle wasn't lit so the neighbors got concerned and they went by, mother are you okay you know how it is in those other countries where they still call everyone mother and sister and auntie and stuff it's really beautiful brothers and sisters it is because we are Are you okay? She said, I'm okay. Um, So they decided not to trouble her and just leave her at that. But then several more nights in succession, no light, no prayers. And they couldn't figure it out. And after a while, they couldn't kind of stand. What's going on? How come she stopped? So a party of a few people went over and said, you know, for 20 years you've done these prayers and so forth, and it's become part of our life. What made you stop? lighting your candle. She said, oh, my sons, my daughters, through my life I've worked so hard, I've saved, I've done what I can, and I had, from all I saved, five silver coins. And I was away last week, and some thief broke into my house and stole them, and I'm heartbroken and I can't recite my prayers. So they left the old woman, and they went around the town, and they took up a collection for her. You know, they felt bad they got enough money and they went and they bought five silver coins and they brought them to her and they were so happy and she thanked them they waited the next night dark no candle (laughs) following night same dark no candle mmm they wondered so they went over there by midnight the second night mother mother is something wrong we've given you back your five silver coins yet you don't recite your prayers She said, sons and daughters, it is true by your kindness. Now I have five silver coins. Still, I cannot pray because my mind keeps thinking that if it hadn't been for those thieves, there would be ten silver coins. (laughs) (laughs) So if you do it for yourself, it's kind of limited. To do spiritual practice for oneself, and it's beautiful, we do need to do it for ourselves, but to do it for oneself alone has two inherent flaws that will become apparent as we do it. The first is the flaw that if we do it for ourselves, the illusion that it, it was as if we had a separate self at all, as if we were separate, which is simply untrue. For we all suffer our sorrows jointly and we all experience mystery and beauty jointly. We suffer together from racism, it's not just somebody else. We suffer from greed, we suffer from the hungry of this earth if we look in our hearts, it touches us all. I remember this conversation with Thich Nhat Hanh that we had some years ago and somebody was asking Thich Han about karma and particularly about group karma. Why should it be, they said to him, the Vietnamese Zen master, why should it be that the Vietnamese people suffered so greatly in that war, the bombings and the killings, all that happened there? Did they do something as a group, the Vietnamese people, you know, to get that karmic consequence of those horrible things happening to them? Why did that karma happen to Vietnam? And he was silent for a little bit. That was a very interesting question. What's he going to say? And he looked back and he said, it didn't happen to the Vietnamese. It happened to us all. And it's true, isn't it? It really affected everybody. So one flaw is to think that it is separate at all that, again, the war there, or the racism there, or the the greed there, or whatever, is for somebody else. It is us, and we know it, and all you have to do is sit quietly, and you know what your body carries of this earth in your heart. And the second flaw, so it's not that, you know, you should do it differently, it just becomes wise, your own wisdom shows you, in doing it for oneself. So to speak, in that even that notion, is it's as if we could keep anything that we do, as if we could get our immortality that way. Remember the sand castles? Hmm? From that Buddhist text. Some children were playing beside a river. They made castles of sand and each child defended theirs and said, this one is mine. And they kept their castles apart and wouldn't let any mistake about whose was whose. And when they were done, one child kicked over someone else's castle, destroying it. The owner of that castle flew into a rage and pulled the kid's hair and struck him and said, he spoiled my castle and got the other kids to come and help him and they destroyed his castle and hit that child. And then they went on playing, saying, This is mine, no one may touch it. And they made their own roads in their own kingdoms. Keep away. And then evening came. It was getting dark, and they thought they should be getting home. Their mothers were calling to them. And now no one cared what became of their castle. One child stamped on his. Another pushed theirs over with both hands. The waves came in over another. And they turned away and went back each to where they had come from. In a way, you can't do it for yourself because there's no such thing that you can possess or own. He who dies with the most toys still dies, right? (laughs) That's the real bumper sticker. (laughs) Or, as Rumi puts it more eloquently, the bumper sticker. Inside the great mystery that is, we don't really own anything what is this competition we feel then before we go one at a time through that same gate we forget how short life is you think you have time says Don Juan that's your problem you think you have time but you don't know I remember my Aunt Ellen in Miami who's 85 a few years ago when Hurricane Andrew came through and she talked about how incredibly hard it was. Her house was all blown away in the hurricane. She said, I couldn't imagine losing it all. But here she was 85. I don't know when she's going to imagine. that It's going to come pretty soon. If you don't imagine it by 85, you better get ready. One of the lessons I've learned from my wife, Liana, is that she always kisses and says goodbye to me or to my daughter Caroline as if when we go out the door as if it was the last time she'd see us each time and it's just become a ritual in our family now to do that and it feels in a way so true we got this phone call a few years ago my daughter had fallen out of this tree and knocked unconscious and was being taken to the hospital by an ambulance at first her playmate came running in the house where she was and yelled because she was completely unconscious and said mommy mommy Caroline has died you know and you can imagine her mother's (laughs) fear oh my what I'm gonna tell her parents right (laughs) so where they turned out it was fine but um, but you don't know you don't know You really it's like a friend on the East Coast a Sangha member who just found out recently that their uh, daughter had cancer and all of a sudden her three grandchildren came to live with her. She had this whole life that was going on and now all of a sudden she's taking care of these three young children and it happened in about three days. Remember this from Don Juan again. Death is our eternal companion. It is always to our left at an arm's length. It has always been watching you. It always will until the day it taps you. The thing to do when you're confused or impatient is to turn to your left and to ask advice of your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you or if you catch a glimpse of it or if you just catch the feeling that your companion is there watching you. So, if we can't possess our children, we don't. We don't own them or possess them or the things that we have or even our own bodies. If we don't do it alone for ourselves alone, then for others, maybe we practice for others. But that too could be a problem. We're going to fix and save and make the world better. It's like Zen Master Wei Nung says after reciting the Bodhisattva Vows, does this mean that I, Wei Nung, am now going to save all sentient beings? That's a pretty grandiose kind of statement, isn't it? Hmm. Here's Thomas Merton on writing as a writer. He says, if you write for God you will reach many men and women and bring them joy. If you write for men and women, you may make some money and you may give someone a little joy and you may make a noise in the world for a little while. If you write for yourself, you can read what you yourself have written and after 10 minutes, you'll be so disgusted you'll wish that you were dead. <laughs> <laughs> ah, be so frank. So who do we do it for, for ourselves, for others? He suggests, as the Balinese do every day, you know, a third of a Balinese person's day is taken up doing ceremonies and offerings to the gods. Before they get in the car, they make an offering and drive and before they cook and before whatever is done, perhaps to sense this heart's desire to connect with something greater. This longing, this vision, To touch something that is beautiful, that we know inside is our birthright. In the face of whatever the circumstances of life is, to to touch that place. After uh, years of practice, one disciple in the monastery was initiated into the most secret mantra. And he was warned by the master not to tell anyone. And he said to the master, what if I tell He said, well, they will be liberated from their sorrows, but if you give this away in an unauthorized fashion, you will be damned and excluded from the company of the community. Hmm. So as soon as he heard this and had the mantra, he went out and left the temple and went into the market and shouted the mantra out and said, here's this mantra that will free you all, the sacred teaching." And one of the other disciples heard this and went running back, you know how it is with disciples. It's all family, right? And told the guru, you've got to expel him. He gave away the secret mantra. And the master just laughed and he says, doesn't matter if I expel him or not. He has no need of the monastery. He is free. His actions have shown him to be a guru in his own right. Do you understand? We have in us a longing to love, to be connected, to be with that which is holy or whole or sacred or timeless. And the point of spiritual practice isn't to be somewhere else or make something or change or do something. All that will come out of it. But to actually be in touch with that which is here now, alive. And this brings us to another way of practice. To sit. Silence, attention, prayer, as a blessing, as an act of peace. It doesn't matter what happens. You sit daily in meditation or you take a walking meditation or whatever. But it's your heart's intention to be awakened, to be present. It's an offering of our being. You know, when you're a monk in the monastic order and they give you robes and bowl, when you leave, even if people make a special robe and sew it and offer it to you and give you this beautiful bowl, it's not yours. You don't own it. You just keep it. You're the steward. And when you disrobe, you have to give it back. None of it belongs to you. It's true, you know, you're just the accountant in the firm, as it said. None of it belongs to you. And from this place then practice or spiritual life is simply resting in our goodness, our Buddha nature, following the heart's connection to life. And mindfulness itself is an act of love, a sacred presence. And there is in our attention in any moment, beauty, nobility, a kind of humor, you know, as Ramdas says, you become a connoisseur of your neurosis. You say, that's fantastic, look at that one again. Sure got caught, didn't I? There's compassion, there's generosity of spirit, and these are called Adi virtues, the higher virtues, not because you're trying to be good or generous or moral, but because you love, because you're present and not so frightened about life. And then quite naturally, there is a kind of goodness in that presence, in that listening. As Gandhi says, and is inscribed in his tomb along the banks of the Ganges. May you look at your life, look at each act of your life and ask the question, um, in this action, how will it affect the poorest of the poor that I have ever met? How I live is my spiritual practice. The value of a civilization will be judged not on the wealthiest individuals, the greatest art, the largest cities, but on how it treats its poorest members, its children, those who are sick, those who have no power. How do we care for one another? How do we care for our environment? How do we care for our community? And from this place, to sit is an act of world peace. To find that place in yourself that then when you get up, you bring to your work, to your relationship to the way you vote. To sit is to hold the sorrows of the world which are inevitable in life. It is the truth, the loneliness, the pain, the difficulties, not just for yourself, but for all beings, for all of us, Camus. He says, great ideas, it has been said, come into the world as gently as doves. Perhaps then, if we listen attentively, we can hear amid the uproar of empires and nations, a faint flutter of wings, the gentle stirring of life and hope. Some think that this hope lies in a nation, others in groups of people. I believe it is awakened and nourished individually by millions whose deeds and works and moments inspire and shape the possibility of all humankind, moment by moment. I had a friend in their late 50s who went to work and live for a while in Nicaragua in villages down there and started to get a little bit sick and was living with these families and working this particular village for for some time, um, and then it was time for them to come back home. They'd been there a couple of years, and they were talking about aging and the different cultures and how it was, and family that they lived with is a bit younger. And the family said to them, "You know, when you get older, if you don't have anywhere to go, don't let them put you in one of those homes or whatever they have in your country. Come live with us, and we'll care for you." Imagine somebody saying that to you, not even your family, just somebody that you went to be with and live with. Isn't that beautiful? And almost and kind of amazing. And we used to do that for people all the time, you know. a hmm. kind of community that comes just with our presence, with this sacred attention, this kind of connection. And we do it, we'll care for you because we are part of the whole. In some sense, the ground of our attention, the freedom that we find there, the compassion that we find there which seems so simple in meditation, is a gift to our children, to the earth, to the way we drive, to the way we vote and talk. And there are a thousand reasons why we might do it. It almost doesn't matter so much. It's in the moment of doing or being is a better word. It's simply living that life again in this moment of our presence that has an incredible power in the moment in your marriage in the moment in that connection with another in that relationship in your work and whatever it is amazing power to awaken to heal to change this world Hmm. I end I guess with a couple things This is from Dorothy Day. She says, Does God have a set way of prayer, a way that we're expected to follow each of us? I don't think so. I believe that some people, many of us, will pray in silence, and many others pray through the witness of their lives, through the work they do, the friendships they have, the love they offer others and receive from others. Since when are words the only acceptable form of prayer? Let your life be your prayer. So what brings you to spiritual life? What really most deeply do you want from this life that you've been given? What motivates your practice? What motivates your days? Your work, your art? your movements on this earth. Let's sit for a minute. Individually, by millions, whose deeds and works and moments inspire and shape the possibility of all humankind, moment by moment. I had a friend in their late 50s who went to work and lived a while in Nicaragua in villages down there and started to get a little bit sick and was living with these families and working this particular village for for some time um, and then it was time for them to come back home they had been there a couple of years and they were talking about aging and the different cultures and how it was and family that they live with is a bit younger and the family said to them you know when you get older If you don't have anywhere to go, don't let them put you in one of those homes or whatever they have in your country. Come live with us and we'll care for you. Imagine somebody saying that to you, not even your family, just somebody that you went to be with and live with. Isn't that beautiful? And almost kind of amazing. And we used to do that for people all the time, you know. A kind of community that comes just with our presence, with this sacred attention, this kind of connection. And we do it, we'll care for you, because we are part of the whole. In some sense, The ground of our attention, the freedom that we find there, the compassion that we find there, which seems so simple in meditation, is a gift to our children, to the earth, to the way we drive, to the way we vote and talk. And there are a thousand reasons why we might do it. It almost doesn't matter so much It's in the moment of doing or being is a better word. It's simply living that life again in this moment of our presence that has an incredible power in the moment in your marriage, in the moment in that connection with another, in that relationship, in your work and whatever it is. Amazing power to awaken, to heal, to change this world. I end, I guess, with a couple things. This is from Dorothy Day. She says, does God have a set way of prayer, a way that we're expected to follow each of us? I don't think so. I believe that some people, many of us, will pray in silence, and many others pray through the witness of their lives through the work they do, the friendships they have, the love they offer others and receive from others. Since when are words the only acceptable form of prayer? Let your life be your prayer. So what brings you to spiritual life? What really most deeply do you want from this life that you've been given? What motivates your practice? What motivates your days, your work, your art, your movements on this earth? Let's sit for a minute. And as you sit sits in silence, let yourself sense from your heart's knowing from the deepest place in you how you want to live this life, what quality of life you want to bring to each day. that meditation isn't an end in itself it is a way for this heartfelt listening to take place to remember what is true and to live from that